This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan occasioned a tidal wave of U.S. media attention to a country and people about whom Americans have not thought about much for years, but suddenly professed to passionately care about. The war had long since faded into the background noise of American empire, the first of what became so many forever wars. Remarkably, though, Americans by and large never knew much about Afghanistan its people, culture, politics, or history, at all. This episode is my interview with Tariq Ali on the long history of Afghanistan, and we cover a lot, including the 19th and early 20th century wars against the British Empire and the British imposition of the Durand Line partitioning Pashtun territory between Afghanistan and British India, today Pakistan. Afghanistan's modernizing king, Amanullah Khan, Prince Mohammed Daoud Khan's 1973 coup against King Zahir Shah in alliance with the Parcham Communist faction. Then, the alliance of the Parcham and Kalk Communist factions to form the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or PDPA, which overthrew Daoud in 1978 in the so-called Sour Revolution. The Soviet invasion in 1979 and the U.S. and allied countries' support for religious fundamentalist Mujahideen. The civil wars of the early 1990s and the Pakistan-trained Taliban's seizure of power in 1996, all the way through the U.S.-led NATO overthrow of the Taliban government in 2001 to the present day's disastrous reality. We also inevitably cover a ton of Pakistani history, including the long history of Pakistan's security state supporting Islamist militants in Afghanistan and elsewhere, the permanent U.S.-allied military government that rules Pakistan regardless of the nominal civilian government in power, and the brutal violence visited upon Pakistanis by their military, the U.S. drone war, and militant Islamists. Before we get started, if you are a regular listener, you know by now that this is a listener-supported podcast, and the place where you, our listeners, can support us is at patreon.com slash the dig. If you appreciate what we are doing here, please take a quick moment to make a contribution. We have books, tote bags, and mugs to send you, and contributors of any amount at all 
any amount at all, we'll get our new and very, very good weekly newsletter delivered right to your email inbox. Contributions from those of you who can afford to contribute are what makes it possible for us to make every episode of The Dig freely available to all, regardless of your ability to contribute. So if you can afford to support us and you want that weekly newsletter, please hit pause for a quick moment. Go to patreon.com slash the dig and contribute what you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. If you are a Dig patron and aren't getting the newsletter, please visit the Patreon website and check to make sure that Patreon messages are getting forwarded to the correct email address. If you can't afford to support us at Patreon, all of our newsletters are also available at thedigradio.com. Okay, finally, the audio of this interview is totally fine, but not entirely up to my typical standards. So, my apology. So it goes with podcasting. Okay, here's Tariq Ali, a longstanding member of the editorial committee of New Left Review, who has written more than two dozen books on world history and politics, the most recent of which are The Clash of Fundamentalisms, The Obama Syndrome, and The Extreme Center, as well as the novels of his Islam Quintet and scripts for the stage and screen. Today, we're discussing his forthcoming book, The Forty-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold which is out from Verso Books November 23rd, 2021. And you can pre-order The 40-Year War in Afghanistan now at versobooks.com. Tarek Ali, welcome to The Dig. Very good to be with you. You open your book, quote, The fall of Kabul to the Taliban on the 15th of August 2021 is a major political and ideological defeat for the American empire. Reading that, it occurred to me that ironically, U.S. empire's most committed fans seem to agree with you on that point. But they, by contrast, of course, think that that's a really bad thing. What is it about the American defeat in Afghanistan that's most harmful to American power? The fact that the United States, together with its NATO allies, occupied a relatively small country in Asia, stayed there for 20 years, and ultimately were forced to leave after a six, seven-day offensive by the Taliban, who rolled back a 20-year occupation within the space of days. Now, that for the U.S. allies is a defeat, and understandably so, because they achieved nothing. They had no real aims in Afghanistan. When Biden and others say that, they're right. Their only aim was it was a war of revenge to punish the country that had given refuge to al-Qaeda and the terrorists who attacked the U.S. on 9-11. Well, that was done very quickly. They occupied the country. The Taliban didn't put up a resistance. They just went back to their villages and bided their time. Bin Laden wasn't there anyway. He left and was in Pakistan. And they finally got him and uh, executed him without a trial and then boasted about it. So, you know, most people who are not political at all would say, well, we've done what we said we'd do. Why aren't we getting out? And that's the main question. Why did they take so long to get out? They could have left in 2010 and any year after that. They had this liberationist rhetoric, which they used 
for public opinion in Europe especially, which was totally on their side in this war, which said we're going to liberate women, we're going to sort things out. That was never the real aim, as has now been admitted by US generals and politicians. The aim was punishment. And part of that punishment was going to be that it would enable them having wrapped Afghanistan on the knuckles to then move on and fulfill their mission in the Middle East. But they botched this one. And in a world where the United States is the dominant, if not the only power, imperial power, superpower, for them to be defeated by these guys is a a huge defeat, not a military defeat, I make that very clear, but an ideological political defeat. And the next time they go in for long occupations, from the right and the left and the center of US politics, there will be some opposition. Do you know what you're doing? Are we going to go in for another long haul and then suffer at the end, etc.? So what I would say, which the critics of Biden aren't saying is that there was no other option. How long did people want the United States to stay there? Another 10 years, 20 years, forever? I mean, some of the Brits who've been criticizing Biden for leaving have a terrible record themselves in Afghanistan and so are attacking him for leaving. I mean, the United States didn't physically stop any other allied power from staying on if they want. They just couldn't handle it because they can never handle anything without the United States. They're so closely tied to the US that that's it. I remember once some years ago, about 10, 12 years ago, I was in Denmark giving a lecture on Afghanistan. And sitting on the panel with me was a government minister from whatever government there was. And she kept on this sort of fake liberationist talk. And I said, look, you've already been there for many years. Nothing has changed in the condition of uh, women. And it's not going to change with this type of occupation because your principal allies are no different from the Taliban when it comes to the issue of gender. They're no different. So nothing is going to change. So do cut it out. And she said, no, we will stay there as long as we have to, to liberate women. So I just asked her, I said, are you going to stay there even after the United States leaves? And she said, pardon me? I said, you heard. I said, the United States will leave sooner or later, and then you people can nurse your wounded rhetoric at home, because you're not going to stay, nor is any other NATO country or European power. She couldn't reply. She said, no, well, without the United States, I said, well, there. So you're completely tied to what the US motives are. And this is what's hurting them, the Germans, the Brits, and others, that they couldn't do anything without the US. But it was a US initiative, after all. So once they they had to get out, which Trump had more or less agreed on and Biden then pushed through, there was no other there was no other alternative the one thing adan which uh, is being said is well we were in favor of a transitional government it's true so were the taliban they had accepted mm-hmm. the it's the us puppet president who uh, went off 
he eloped with two jeep loads of dollars. How many billions there were in there, we don't know. Hopped on a helicopter, which took him to a neighboring country from where he got a flight and got into the, uh, the Gulf, the Arab Gulf state. So it was the complete failure of the United States to establish any kind of alternative. Otherwise, you can't explain your president running off with money when he's meant to be part of a transitional government and your puppet army consisting of 300,000 paid soldiers just collapsing, collapsing. Not a single city where they fought back. So it's from that point of view, this type of war and this type of occupation has proved to be a complete failure. And that is what is upsetting some US allies. It wasn't just the Europeans, though, who were scandalized by the withdrawal and Taliban victory, but the entire national security state establishment in the U.S. and so much of the media. But was the real scandal that the U.S. and NATO didn't get what Richard Nixon had sought after the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam, a so-called decent interval between U.S. withdrawal and the fall of Kabul? Is the real scandal for the West not the fate of Afghans, though I'm sure some people do sincerely believe that they care about the fate of Afghans, but more the state of American and European prestige and and honor? That is exactly right. Uh, If you look at the media, including the liberal media in Europe and the United States, the music they're playing is the same. This is a disaster for us because we've shown to be weak and they can't come up with alternatives. One idiot semi-journalist in Britain writing in the New Statesman said, well, we could have maintained a small garrison there forever, a small garrison forever with Pakistan opposed to it, with China opposed to it. How on earth are you going to do that? And in terms of sympathy for the Afghans, they do not ask the real questions. How come we occupied for so long and achieved nothing? And how come we couldn't build any real support in that country at all, which would fight for us or with us? And is the method they used of infesting Kabul and other cities with NGOs and pouring money to probably some well-deserving people, uh, giving them money, that doesn't solve the thing. It's a sort of Oxfam view of politics. Go in, (laughs) give a few people something to eat in starving African villages, then come out and feel we can all feel good again. And that was what basically they they did, and no one can feel good. And I mean, the appalling thing is this, Dan, that in my opinion, after every big war the U.S. has fought, they have, like it or not, grudgingly allowed lots of refugees in, accepted their responsibility. You had large number of Koreans coming in after the Korean War and large numbers of Vietnamese. By large numbers, I mean tens of thousands. I don't mean millions. And after the Afghan war, they've got suddenly got very strict. We're not going to allow too many in. The Europeans are even tougher on this question of refugees than the United States. So they have nil interest, in my opinion, apart from a handful of well-meaning do-gooders, in the 
future of Afghanistan, the fate of the Afghan people, or anything like that. And it's it's foolish to pretend that they do. Well, that seems to be a major and revealing change in the politics of liberal empire, that providing those sorts of goods and services to the world order is no longer no longer seems seems necessary or politically possible domestically in the United States. Yeah, I think that uh, it's going to become even more difficult as uh, time goes by and the economic situation in the United States doesn't get better, despite the uh, break with neoliberalism and the Biden stimulus. Let's see if it gets through the uh, House and, and Senate. And with the United States incapable of offering its own people at home what they need, and very basic needs in health and education particularly, there will be more and more anger when they go and spend trillions. I mean, just think of it. These so-called wars against terror, A, have created more terrorism globally, and B, six wars they've fought, None of them has proved to be successful, and they've spent trillions, trillions, which they could have spent on building a really super infrastructure in the United States itself and making sure its people were looked after. And the comparison with China, of course, is very striking. Who are the Chinese have built these new cities? They've got quite an astonishing infrastructure now on on many levels. Until now, the government is safe. You know, it's not an unpopular government in China, even though it's not democratic. It's not unpopular with its people. So that is a thing which American politicians have um, completely failed to grasp, actually. And now they're beginning to think about it. But how far they'll go, I don't know. But it's, and the the Afghan debacle plays into all that. The only success in Afghanistan, if we want to talk in those terms, has been that Afghanistan's exports to the rest of the world have shot up from about 24% of the world market to 90% of the world market. And that is the poppy, heroin and opium. So this is the benefit which the United States and its NATO allies, who instead of stopping this trade, basically encouraged it and a lot of money exchanged hands. Everyone apart from the really poor people benefited from this. Rich farmers benefited, corrupt businessmen, military officers from all the countries uh, benefited. God knows how much money was exchanged uh, with the people at the very top, the top brass of the armies that were there. And the second big shift that occurred, which is important to register, given that people talk about women a lot, is the huge influx of sex workers, stroke prostitutes, to service the needs of the guys who had been sent and stationed in Afghanistan. Till this day, we can't get statistics on the number of brothels in Afghanistan or how many women were taken in or what their ethnicities were. But privately, Afghans talk about this with great, great bitterness. I want to get into some of the longer history, going back 
to the 19th century. But first, before we get any further, I want to clarify the broader political and social organization of Afghanistan so that listeners have that for context. To what extent is political and social life in Afghanistan ethnically organized with loyalties divided between the Pashtun plurality and the Tajik, Uzbek, and Hazara minorities? And to what degree are other forces at work? I think the first thing to say on this is that the since the formation of Afghanistan in the 18th century as a federation of tribes, the structure was seen as largely tribal rather than ethnic. So ethnicity as such was more or less banned. It's still not registered in the census. Whenever they take a census uh, of the country, it's always Afghans, Afghan citizens. They don't say Pashtun or Tajik or Hazaras or Sunni or Shia. That is never done. And uh, for good reason, they wanted to create a state which had its own sovereignty, despite its uh, tribal structures. And it was the tribes, and the largest of them in particular, who uh, made final decisions on who should the rulers be. All the imperial states from the British, the three British interventions in the 19th century onwards have played on this tribal structure, how to break it up, how to break up the tribes, how to back one tribe against the other. And they did this with the 20-year occupation by the United States now of using the Northern Alliance against the predominantly Pashtun Taliban. Uh, uh, That's what they did. And it hasn't worked, and it's not worked in the past. And if you read in in my book, I I give some quotations of how they referred to the Afghans, savages. A a senior British civil civil servant writes uh, to his superior, the uh, tribesmen of Afghanistan are savages. Uh, Noble savages, perhaps, but savages. And this is the logic for genocide, really. I mean, this is what they said in the uh, US. This is what they said in Australia. This is what they said in parts of Africa. This is what we are fighting our savages. In the case of Afghanistan, it couldn't have been more false. Because while literacy was low, the oral traditions and the artistic traditions and the poetry produced by the Afghans was on a much, much higher level than in parts of Europe, to be perfectly frank with you. This characterization sets the Afghans. This is who they are. And this carries on till now. Oh, these are people who don't understand democracy. Well, no, they do and they don't. But what they don't like is when so-called democratic powers come and occupy them and commit atrocities nonstop. So the British who went to occupy them failed. The Russians who made a huge mistake and went in to try and save a government which couldn't be saved didn't succeed. Though to be fair, they probably did the most useful things while they were there in terms of educating women, in terms of building schools and universities and hospitals, and a lot of Afghans benefited from that. But again, mainly in the cities. As you mentioned, Afghanistan fought three wars with the British Empire. The first war was 1839 to 1842. 
and that was an Afghan victory, you write that, quote, ended with the annihilation of the British army and was also, and this was fascinating to learn, quote, undoubtedly one of the inspirations for the great uprising of 1857 that almost toppled the British in India. The second war, though, from 1878 to 1880, was won by the British, and it was followed by the imposition of, quote, the Durand Line as a 1,600-mile frontier between British India and Afghanistan, dividing the Pashtun tribes in order to weaken Afghanistan. This is a really pivotal moment. What were the British seeking to accomplish with these first two wars in Afghanistan, and what was their motive in imposing the Durand Line? The British were basically seeking to bring Afghanistan under control because they feared the expansionism of the Russian Tsar and the Tsarist, the Russian Empire, and they felt that as the Russians were advancing, they could capture Afghanistan. So in the first uh, first wars, it was inter-imperialist rivalry, the first two wars. And the British wanted to make sure that Afghanistan was under their control. After the defeat they suffered in the uh, first war, they gave up ideas of a permanent educa- uh, occupation, but they still had to make sure they could push something through. And that is when they went in with a larger armed force. It wasn't easy even the second time, but they, they, they defeated the Afghans and divided the country so that uh, Pashtun cities, which had been semi under Indian and British Indian occupation, it was now cemented this deal. The, like Peshawar. Yeah, the official officialized and uh, it couldn't you couldn't go back and though it was a hundred year deal so in the 1990s its time was up but no one dared raise it because Afghanistan was in a mess and the Pakistanis said no way are we going to go back on that it was a lease for a hundred years not unlike the Hong Kong lease that is uh, what the aim was now and the third war which was a quick one was basically to topple what we can only call now uh, the most radical leader that Afghanistan has had, King Amanullah, and his feminist wife, Queen Soraya. And the British again stirred up tribal conservatism to get rid of her. Pictures of Queen Soraya, fake pictures, doctored pictures in tiny bikinis. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, just appalling. The same tricks again, saying, look, this is how your queen goes when she travels abroad. And Soraya was quite a hardline feminist. I mean, she, it was on her insistence that the king agreed, and so did the courtiers, to have a clause in the Afghan constitution, which they were going to put into action, of giving women the right to vote. And had that constitution gone through, women would have had the right to vote in Afghanistan before they did in the United States and Britain (laughs) and most of Europe. I mean, that's, you know, one of the ironies of history. So the British came, removed him because he was friendly with Lenin and with Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, said these are modernist leaders, we must learn from Bolshevik Russia and modern Turkey to rebuild our country. 
And uh, that was something the British couldn't uh, accept. So they came and toppled him, very much like the United States later toppled the uh, more progressive regime in Afghanistan, which was not as enlightened as the king, by the way. But anyway, so that was the, uh, the first three wars. But one thing it's worth noting, and I've been thinking of it more and more, that when big empires want to really punish a people, it's not just that they kill lots of them. That's normal for these empires. But the British general, I think it was General Pollock or General Roberts, one of them, ordered the destruction of a beautiful medieval bazaar in Kabul, constructed at the same time as the bazaars in Persia, in the Middle East, just ordered its destruction just to punish them. And then you compare this punishment to the punishment they inflicted on the Chinese during the Opium Wars, which is the destruction of the Summer Palace an incredibly beautiful 18th century palace built uh, by the Qing, Qing dynasty and its emperors. All the descriptions of it are amazing. And that took them 4,000 soldiers and God knows how many weeks to make sure it was destroyed completely. British and French soldiers carried that out. And the French commander wrote a proud letter to Victor Hugo saying, look what we've done and got a very nasty response back saying, you are the barbarians. So um, it's imperial power sent to do that. And then you see what the US did when they took Iraq in 2003, opening the doors of the museum, chucking the stuff out, throwing valuable papers going back centuries, tablets, from the early period of Mesopotamian history were finally found in the United States going through auction houses and some court in in the United States mercifully said, these are too valuable. These have to be returned to Iraq. So they were returned a a few weeks ago, I think the decision came. So this of trying to crush the culture of a country is very, very specific to Western imperialism because it clashes with their own rhetoric of these are savages. There was this truly nefarious British intervention, but also you write, quote, the senior Bolshevik Raskolnikov remarked that Amanullah had introduced bourgeois reforms without a bourgeoisie, whose cost had fallen on peasants whom he had failed to win over with an agrarian reform, allowing Britain to exploit social and tribal divisions in the country. Do you agree with Raskolnikov's assessment? I think it's a bit simplistic, quite honestly. He'd just taken power. He wasn't, and he never pretended to be a socialist. He was a bourgeois reformer. It's true, without a bourgeoisie. But then Afghanistan has never had a bourgeoisie, full stop. The closest it got to a real bourgeoisie was, I guess, a tiny one, was in the 60s and 70s. And the United States then came with this 20-year occupation and created an artificial bourgeoisie uh, with their money, who were mainly uh, property, you know, building big buildings and selling them off and all that, a sort of tiny bourgeoisie, which I don't think is going to last too long. But uh, there is, of course, an element of truth. 
in uh, uh, Raskolnikov's uh, assessment that it was largely a country of tribal peasants. So that Amanullah he's suggesting was a bit far-fetched, but I don't agree with that because uh, the plans of Amanullah and that the people around him were to modernize as much as they could. They saw they saw the Turkish model, which was not so dissimilar to their own, and said, "If Turkey can do it, we can do it." So it it was you know something anyway. We'll never know the answer to that. In 1973, Prince Daoud staged a palace coup that overthrew his uncle, King Zakir Shah. And Daoud proclaimed a republic with support from one of Afghanistan's two main communist factions, a grouping called Parchim, which means flag. But by 1977, Parchim had reunited with the other main communist faction, Kalk, which means people, to create the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or PDPA, in opposition to the Daoud regime. And Daoud responded by implementing this brutal crackdown with help from the Shah of Iran. How did Daoud's alliance with Parchim come about in the first place? And then why did he and the communists ultimately come into such violent conflict? Daoud regarded Pakistan as his main enemy because he felt that clinging on to Pashtun territories and Pashtun lands was a breach of the agreement the Afghans under pressure had been forced to sign with the British. So Afghan nationalism, and it exists, certainly used to exist and still does, as we've seen recently, uh, was extremely hostile to Pakistan during the Daud period. A. Secondly, Daud refused to ally himself with either the US or the Soviet Union maintained a sort of semi-neutrality. The pressure on him uh, not to, to break the alliance with the left came from the Iranians under the Shah of Iran, but behind the Iranians were the CIA. They were nervous. They didn't want another country to go down. They were fighting wars in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, the Domino's theory, uh, which was a beloved theory of American ideologues. If X falls, Y will fall. If Y falls, Z will fall. And if Z falls, we might lose the whole alphabet. So <laughs> it, that, that theory, which we used to even uh, in the 60s call the idiots theory of politics, but they believed in it. And so Afghanistan for them was an important buffer state. And they thought that Daud was playing too, was being too risky. And so they used the Shah to ask Daud, this isn't on. And what pressures the Shah used, we can only guess. Probably oil and trade. I mean, what other pressures could he use? He couldn't have invaded Afghanistan. And so Daoud fell under his discipline. Daoud also knew this was the Americans behind the Shah. So he, he broke with them. Now, the argument of the PTPA and some of its central leaders and cadre who I, I talked to and their supporters, said that they were convinced that they were going to be wiped out. They just killed, locked up, killed. 
And so they decided, that's when they decided to use their strength in the military and air force to unleash a coup, which is exactly what they did. And there were some demonstrations in Kabul supporting them, but very few in the countryside or even in some of the other cities. They were basically, they were tiny groups who had united to form a single party. And given that they had won and defeated they it went to their heads. They said, my God, we've made a revolution. Now, Lenin used to say always when news came to him in Moscow that there's a rebellion in Mongolia and there might be a revolution. Lenin's response was, I think it's a bit difficult to expect herdsmen to make a socialist revolution. I mean, a very calm but <laughs> mature view. And once they decided, had they managed, had the PTPA had any ideas, serious ideas, they would have gone for building alliances, said we're going to push through reforms, we have a constitution which Amanullah left behind, which the imperialists wouldn't let him implement, we're going to implement that, we're going to have gen uh, elections for a constituent assembly, uh, which will determine the future, i.e. involve other groups, other tribes, the people uh, in their thing. But no, their model was a one-party socialist state like Eastern Europe. To be fair to the Russians, they did try and tell them not to go for it. They said this is a foolish idea. And it wasn't a, the, what they called the Sour Re Revolution. was was not a Soviet-backed coup, as it was often thought of in the West, but it also, as you mentioned, really didn't have much of a popular base either. And the Kalk leader, Hafizullah Amin, who in 1979 would become prime minister, had this remarkable quote that you cite, quote, prior to our revolution, the working class everywhere wanted to follow the footprints of the great October revolution. However, after the great sour revolution, the toilers should know that there does exist a shortcut which can transfer the power from the feudal class to the working class. And our revolution proved it. How did this profound misunderstanding of what the Sour Revolution and the PDP were shape what the PDP regime was in power? I think they knew that uh, this was all fake stuff. But uh, when the, I know this for a fact, that when the Soviet leaders told them, look, cut it out, uh, you know, some of the killings you started just stopped this. And they, they, they sent this reply to the Soviet Communist Party saying uh, Stalin did it and was proved successful, so why shouldn't we? Implying that the Soviet leaders were themselves revisionists uh, for having ditched that <laughs> route. And so the Russians were getting more and more angry and then the faction fight took place, which was a bloodbath. You know, they killed uh, Nur Muhammad Taraki, the Parcham leader, his grisly scenes. They came for him and he knew what it was. And he just took off his watch and said, could you make sure my son gets this? 
and they gave it to him. And then they, they strangled him to death, rolled him up in a carpet, and the carpet was taken out of the presidential palace and he was buried. That's how they dealt with this factional fight. And then Hafizullah Amin seized power as the sole leader. You didn't have to share power. I mean, there is a twisted logic to it that if you aren't allowed to share power, if you are not prepared to share power with people not in your party, why should you share power with another faction in your party? It's a sort of ingrained, genetic, politically genetic monolithism. This is how we're going to operate. And he had another appalling. Uh, they used to publish photographs of all the class enemies they'd killed, who were mainly slightly well-off peasants or people who didn't agree with them in the cities. And I can't remember exactly now the slogan they used, but they said 90% of the people are with us, 10% are against us, so we have to just wipe out this 10%. I mean, that was the official reason they gave to a country which they, where they'd seized power promising democracy. Daud was a dictator and authoritarian, and they ended up killing more people than Daud could ever even conceive of. So it's this whole tradition in politics at that time. I mean, that's why you know, people within Afghanistan used to say it's our bad luck that we've got... Hafizullah Amin, who belongs to the Pol Pot faction of global politics. The, the Saur Revolution took place in, on April 28th, 1978, and was not very long after, December 1979, that the Soviet army crossed the Oxus River into Afghanistan. And that invasion, of course, was a total disaster. You write, quote, The entry of Soviet troops into Afghanistan transformed an unpleasant civil war funded by Washington into a jihad enabling the Mujahideen, holy warriors, to appear as the only defenders of Afghan sovereignty against the foreign army of occupation. But you also write that the Soviet Politburo was almost until the very last moment entirely opposed to intervening in Afghanistan. Why had they been opposed and then what happened at the last minute to change their mind? This is a very good question, Dan. We still don't have the answer. I mean, someone does, but the (laughs) military archives, despite uh, all the changes, are very heavily guarded. What I'm told what happened was this, that when Hafiz Amin killed the president of the country, a fellow communist, and seized power within the PDPA and, to, and, and became the supreme ruler of Afghanistan. There were people in Moscow who said this is intolerable because this is going to lead to one disaster after the other and we have to go in and get rid of Amin and restore some sanity on the Afghan left. This was their thinking, as later many, I was told this by many people in Moscow. But Yuri Andropov, major figure in the party, head of intelligence, who had been a Soviet ambassador when Soviet troops entered Hungary in 1956, said no. He had never forgotten Hungary. And he said, we should stop this business of intervening. We really must not intervene in Afghanistan. And one round Brezhnev and the Politburo, the whole Politburo. Then I am told, and it's reported, that there was an interval when the intelligence services brought in some papers 
What they were, what was written on them, we can only guess. But after that, the Politburo changed its line 100% and said they had to go in. Now, my own speculation has been that whoever sent these papers in, that what they contained was information suggesting or asserting that Hafizullah Amin was a CIA agent and that Afghanistan was going to become an American satellite state. Uh, and given what Pakistan was already, that would be a blow because it shared borders with the Soviet Union and they mustn't allow this to happen. I think that's what it was. I can't think of any other thing that would make them change their minds so quickly. This by no means obviously excuses the horrors of the Soviet invasion, but you write that, and I think it's important to clarify, that the Soviet Union was, A, not pleased at all with Daoud's 1973 coup against King Zahir Shah, and they were also not pleased with the 1978 communist military coup. So however bad a decision this was to invade, it was not as some in the anti-Soviet camp might frame it, just the Soviet Union propping up a client state that it had intentionally set up. No, it wasn't that. The Soviet position on Afghanistan from the time of Lenin onwards, by the way, was that Afghanistan should be left alone. It's a sovereign state. If they want help from us, we'll give them whatever we can uh, give them. That policy was followed right Till this particular day in December 19, uh, December 1979. Uh, it's a very sad when that happened, actually, because Soviet relations with Afghanistan had been good since now, from 1917 onwards. They didn't intervene much, and they told Afghan communists, who were a tiny minority, they said, just, you know, there's nothing much you can do. Just help the best people who are there. That's why Raskolnikov is even, as you pointed out earlier, Dan, critical of the attempt to make a bourgeois reformist uh, revolution in a country without a bourgeoisie. It was that sort of thing. They needed allies more than ideological ideologues who would try and do this. So no, that's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. This wasn't Soviet imperialism. This wasn't the Soviets searching for a warm water port in Balochistan and all the other stuff they care. It was, a, it was a mistake and they paid the price for it. I mean, they lost a lot of people. And once the United States, as Brzezinski said, when he told the Afghans to wage the jihad, and he was later said, you started this whole thing off. And he said, yeah, but you know, what's a few jumped up Muslims like Al-Qaeda compared to the bringing down the Soviet empire? He said, who cares? Yeah, what is more important to the history of the world? The Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet empire? A few crazed Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? It's so remarkable how much the delusions of these Cold War politics, which seem so to have taken place so long ago, still shape the world today, and how unconcerned those involved in making those Cold War politics seemed at the time about the world that they were making and that we still have to live in. <laughs> well, this, this is why this defeat, let's hope, will force some people... Uh... To think. I mean, the Pentagon was divided when Obama came to office. You remember Obama's rhetoric? Mm -hmm. There are two wars. Iraq was the bad war. 
It's because he didn't vote for it. Uh, Afghanistan is a good war that we have to win. There was a public debate, to my astonishment, between two generals, McChrystal, who was in Afghanistan, and another Pentagon general in D.C., who argued publicly over whether more troops should be sent or not. The general in Afghanistan said, no, we don't need more troops. That is not the problem. And was ignored, and Obama sent in, what, 30,000 more troops to show that he was a tough imperial president. Whereas he could have pulled them out. He was popular during his first term, very popular. And he could have said, look, we've made a big mistake and we're pulling it out. And uh, he, no doubt he would have been attacked. But Biden, who in many ways intellectually and as a politician is a weaker figure, has finally had to do that, what Obama could have done. Circling back briefly, what did motivate the U.S. intervention and what was the relationship between the U.S. intervention and the Soviet invasion? You, you, you cited, and, um, and you just referred to this a few minutes ago, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Brzezinski, who in 1998 gave this interview where he says that Carter secretly started providing aid to Afghan rebels in 1979 before the Soviets invaded. And What's more, he says that both he and the president knew that this would, quote, induce a Soviet military intervention. Did the Soviet intervention precipitate the American intervention or the other way around or, or neither? It's no. I think that the um, Russians were not at all surprised that the Americans were backing the religious groups. They'd done that all over the Middle East since the first outbreaks of Arab nationalism. I mean, the groups the United States supported in Pakistan, Indonesia, the Middle East were all religious groups of one sort or another. So that wouldn't have surprised uh, the Russians it was trouble within their own ranks that angered them. And they said, we can't be attached to this sort of thing any longer. I'm convinced. And in fact, later on, I spoke to lots of senior Soviet people in, in Tashkent and Moscow, and they more or less confirmed it. They said, you know, it was a mistake we made. And this is the reason we made the mistake. And they also said to me, well, you know, once you go in, it's not so easy to come out. I said, well, actually, it is easy. But, you know, you didn't. You stayed there 10 years. Whereas once you'd got rid of Hafizul Amin, you should have said, mission accomplished, and we're going out. We wanted to get rid of this slightly crazed politician. And then we would have seen how things developed. Possibly the regime would have been toppled sooner or later because it was unpopular, but you needn't have gotten involved in it. And many of them have agreed with that assessment. You know, they said, you're right. But I think there's no doubt that the Americans were trying to provoke a conflict. This is why I said what happened in that interval between the first Politburo decision and the second Politburo decision. And of course, they were cock-a-hoop and triumphant when the Russians marched in, because now the religious groups could be forced to unite against the foreign atheist enemy, a wage a jihad to drive them out. And uh, the Americans were pretty confident that they would win that war. And unfortunately, uh, they did with drastic results. This is why in, when I first, the day after the Soviet 
troops went in. The week after I wrote this editorial called Soviet Troops Out of Afghanistan, which is in the book, pointing out why it was a mistake. It was a mistake on many, many levels. It completely ignored any independence the PDP might have had, even though Hafiz al-Amin was a rogue and a scoundrel. It wasn't the Russians' business to sort that out. But most importantly, I said, the religious groups have been looking for something to unite them, and this intervention will unite them. And thirdly, that will draw the Americans in. It'll be a Cold War, and it'll end badly. And in subsequent speeches and articles I wrote, I said, this is now going to uh, create a mess in this region for decades. It's quite prescient. Who were the Mujahideen trained by the U.S. and Pakistan? And, and how were they recruited, trained, and deployed? Osama bin Laden, of course, is one famous alumnus. Well, they were basically members of religious outfits in the Arab world and in Pakistan. And the Pakistani military intelligence, the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence, was given the task of forming disparate groups of volunteers into an army that could take on the Russians. So Pakistan played an absolutely key role in that. And under a military dictator, uh, General uh, Zia ul Haq, who had killed, ordered the execution of the country's elected prime minister, but was tolerated by the United States because they preferred having a military dictator in power, especially when they were waging such an important war. So the Pakistan army was centrally involved, both in the first round, which is arming the existing forces. Now, you asked who they were. They were local tribes, Afghan tribes, more religious-minded, or sections of these tribes. They were volunteers dispatched by the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and people, even more radical Muslims than them, on their fringes in Egypt. And there were Saudis. Now, the Saudis are very reluctant normally uh, to allow their own people to actually do anything. But the jihad needed a Saudi prince, it was said. So a request was sent via Washington that we are desperate for a Saudi prince to lead the jihad. And the Saudi princes who are happiest when they're sort of ensconced in brothels or gambling dens all over Europe and more recently, <laughs> you know, killing their opponents and chopping up their bodies. From their point of view, they saw this attempt to have a Saudi prince leading it as a total diversion. But then they said, hang on. We have a friend of ours who we've grown up with. His name is Osama bin Laden, and he agrees with the need to kick out the Soviets and all that. So Osama was sent, and he was trained by the U.S. and by the Pakistanis. And uh, Al-Qaeda was formed and played a role. And his uh, second-in-command, Al-Zwahiri, came from Egypt and was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Both were intelligent guys. So, you know, it's no good pretending that they were just stupid or dumb or savages. They weren't. I mean, bin Laden was, became more and more critical 
of his old friends in Saudi Arabia. He said, our people are suffering. Uh, he saw the jihad as the beginning of an attempt to create a new caliphate uh, to rescue the people from their tyrannical rulers, by which he meant the Saudi royal family as well. And al-Zwahiri's people had participated. He'd left the Brotherhood and set up a new group, and his group had participated in carrying out that dramatic event where the Egyptian president, Sadat, was inspecting a military parade, and suddenly a whole group of soldiers marched past him, turned their rifles on him, and shot him dead. So there was this tradition from which they were coming, and they were all used by the United States to wage the jihad in Afghanistan and organize the Afghans and uh, groupings inside Afghanistan. And that's, um, it was a well-planned, well-coordinated action. You write, quote, Washington's role in the Afghan war has never been a secret, but few citizens in the West were aware that the United States utilized the intelligence services of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan to create, train, finance, and arm an international network of Islamic militants to fight the Russians in Afghanistan. And you write that Iran and even China and Israel were involved. What important facets are missing from the more narrow popular understanding of anti-communist intervention in Afghanistan? Well, I don't think that most people to this day understand that this was had little to do with Afghanistan itself, but it was a huge attempt and a successful one to defeat the Soviet Union, to inflict a crushing defeat so they had to leave, to take over the country, and to increase Soviet military spending. I think it doubled during the period of their 10-year occupation of the Afghan war, which wrecked their economy. And the Chinese, uh, I trust, are following this pattern closely now. So their attempt was, I mean, they, they made no, you know, secret of it, we're going to defeat the Russians here. And their little uh, lapdogs like General Zia of Pakistan shouted, and once we've defeated them, we're going to liberate Muslim Central Asia. So that's the language they were speaking. It was, uh, I mean, it wasn't that well thought out, but what they wanted was very clear that they wanted Tajikistan, they, they wanted Kyrgyzstan, they wanted Tashkent, uh, all these Central Asian republics, which they haven't got, but that was the um, aim. And so they built a grand anti-Soviet alliance. Khomeini, of course, had always said that while the United States is the big Satan, <laughs> the, the Soviet Union is the little Satan. But then he, he joined with the big Satan to try and defeat the little Satan. And uh, his country suffered as a result. It was a very foolish, opportunist thing. The Chinese at that time regarded the Soviet Union as a totally uh, appalling power that had betrayed them in their time of need. So they supplied informally some uh, Uyghurs from Xinjiang to go and fight in Afghanistan. 
and the Pakistanis, of course, were, were centrally involved. And all these groups that were trained and fought in Afghanistan after the war was over, even before the Taliban had taken power, they'd been, gone back to their own countries and been treated like total dirt. So that is what was one reason why they became ultra-hostile to the United States, because the United States had no need for them and discarded them. You know, they're like used condoms being flushed down the toilet. That's how they felt they'd been treated. And so the next phase of their activity was the following. They said, we won the war, not the Americans. Total fantasy. Total and complete fantasy. And so we can take on this big. We've defeated one empire, we can defeat another one. That was the way they thought. And at least damage it and hurt it. And the Pakistani military leaders began to think like that as well. No, we took Afghanistan, let's punish India on Kashmir. And they infiltrated lots of jihadis into Kashmir with disastrous results for the poor Kashmiri people. So it went to their heads, as we say, and they never gave up. And then 9-11 happened, which was not a huge surprise. It shouldn't have been a huge surprise to the intelligence agencies in the US because they'd already caught a guy some years before. Uh, and he was caught trying to plant some bombs in the basement of the building. And they took him, they, he escaped, believe it or not, he escaped. And they finally recaptured him in Pakistan after 9-11. And as they were taking him in a helicopter from New York airport to Langley, Virginia, he looked, uh, no, this was before 9-11. Uh, he pointed at the building, the Twin Towers, and said, that is what I was trying to blow up. So here you have a prisoner a self-confessed jihadi who's telling you openly, this is what we are, our target was. I mean, surely something should have been done. Why is this a target? They must have had, I don't know what, I hate the conspiracy theorists because they're just sort of imbeciles, most of them. But, you know, you do ask the question, you knew that was the target. What was it you didn't know? I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash The Dig. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com slash donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com slash donate. 
you'll keep Jacobin going in tough times. And Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. Turning to Pakistan, you wrote in 1983, quote, In Pakistan, the main impacts of these events has been to strengthen the military regime of Jia al-Huq and to aid those who are arguing for the army to have a semi-permanent Turkish-style presence in the political life of the country. What role did the U.S. play in bringing Zia to power? And how did Zia, with U.S. support amid the Mujahideen War in Afghanistan, how did he lay the groundwork in that whole period, lay the groundwork for making Pakistan's army into the sort of permanent government that it remains today? Well, look, it's a long history, but let's put it this way. Pakistan was created in 1947. Uh, It was the Muslim state carved out of predominantly Hindu India. Uh, It broke up in 1972 because East Pakistan, predominantly Muslim, didn't want to stay with the West. What was the West? What was West Pakistan going to do now? The United States had encouraged the first military coup in Pakistan in 1958. That coup led to the breakup of Pakistan. Then they encouraged another military coup, which didn't last too long. Then they brought Zia into power, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and Zia was trained in U.S. training facilities. Whether it was in Georgia, Fort Benning, I can't remember now. And they brought them in and they kept on a leash till it's time to unleash them. And the elected prime minister had lost an election because had won an election which they said was rigged. Now, any observer in the country, including his enemies, would have said perhaps there was some rigging, but it was very stupid of them to rig it when he was already popular and could have won it without any rigging. But okay, let's admit, Bhutto himself, the politician in question... Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the patriarch of the Bhutto dynasty. Yeah. Zulfikar Ali Bhutto then said, okay, let's have new elections. If you think I rig him, let the army supervise him. Let's have new elections. To prevent these new elections altogether... They seized power. The military seized power in April 1977. And then for the next two years, they had Bhutto on trial. Many countries pleaded for his life to be spared, except one, the United States. Had they not wanted Bhutto to be hanged on fake charges, they could have stopped. They didn't. It's that time to get rid of him. And there's a famous uh, scene described by someone who was present that Bhutto had got Libyan money to bring to build a nuclear bomb, largely as a response against India. Foolishly, but that was what it was meant to be. Now, Kissinger put mega pressure on him not to do that. And Bhutto refused. He said, why don't you stop the Indians? You know, the Kissinger then lost it. And with other people present, Pakistanis present, said, unless you desist on the nuclear question, we'll make a terrible example out of you. And when Bhutto was being hanged, people did say 
this is the American punishment for building the nuclear bomb. It had nothing to do with Afghanistan or anything like that. But then they let Zia build the bomb, like they let the Israelis build the bomb, you know. So uh, it, the needs of the empire are always variable since their allies change with it, you know, such frequency. So uh, that's when they built Zia up and defended him uh, to the hilt. Now, there's a tiny footnote here, which uh, is as follows. I had been commissioned by the BBC to write a three-part series on Bhutto and the coup d'etat, which toppled him. I wrote this series. It was approved. Leading actors from the subcontinent were being cast when suddenly the head of drama at the BBC said to me, the director general of the BBC, who is, of course, our editor-in-chief, has asked to see the scripts. I said, not good news. He said, I agree, but let's see what happens. What happened was that I got a phone call some weeks later from Mark Tully, who was the BBC's iconic correspondent in India. And he spoke a bit of Hindi, this, that, and he said, hi, Let's meet up for a drink. Don't ask me why. So it's important. So the BBC's head of drama said, you've got to go and talk to him. So I said, okay. So I, went, I said, hi, Mark, how goes it? He said, you tell me. Pleasantries were exchanged. I said, why, Mark, let's not waste each other's time. Why actually do you want the meeting? He said, okay, let me be open. The director general, who, by the way, was generally was regarded as a very decent guy, and he was, but he was under heavy pressure. He said, what if I were to ask you to remove the last scenes from the play? So I said, these are scenes saying that the United States authorized the coup and refused to save Bhutto's life. He said, yeah, just leave the Americans out of it. It's a very strong play even without that. So I said, well, you know what? He said, okay, Tarek, let me be blunt. If you agree to take these last passages out, the plays will be done and performed. Even though General Zia is an ally because of Afghanistan, you can still do them. But if you leave the American connection in, I said, why should I take it out when we all know it's a fact? He said, I was in, uh, in Pakistan when Bhutto was being hanged. I didn't find any evidence. I said, did you look for it? Did you look for any evidence? I said, the evidence is there. And I gave him, in he said, look, it was my duty to ask you this question. I warned them what your reply would be. In fact, my reply was very rude. I said, I you know, better not say it on a podcast for the United States, but I was uh, just told them to go and take a running jump that I wasn't going to accept my play. And so they never put it on. Uh, this is how deep they were, uh, the, the influence of, it was the Foreign Office and British Intelligence who didn't want Zia damaged and picked on this particular thing. Lots of people told me, you're wrong, we could have done it without that. And I said, well, I didn't want to do it without that. So the, the connections between the United States and the Pakistanis were incredibly close during that entire period. Money poured into that country, weapons poured into that country, weapons which were sold to other groups who were in need 
of weaponry. I remember I was in Pakistan at the time in Rawalpindi, which is the military capital where the army headquarters are. And in the middle of the night, we heard a huge explosion. And I said, oh my God, don't tell me the wars <laughs> arrived in Rawalpindi. No, it wasn't that. It was a large warehouse consisting of the latest American weaponry. And the U.S. Defense Department had sent auditors to go and check out how much weapons there were, what had happened to them, and they blew them up. The Pakistani military blew up the warehouse and said it was terrorists. So no checkups could be done. No checks could be made. But there was a lot of collaboration on many, many levels. Pakistan had become, as they used to boast, a frontline state in the war against communism and Russia, etc. From then, you had something also very interesting taking place. A lot of Afghan refugees who'd come out in the 10 years of the Russian occupation had kids. The kids were being schooled and trained in religious schools in the Pashtun belt of Pakistan. And these kids were made ready once they'd graduated from these bizarre schools uh, to go and fight. The word Taliban means student. That's what it's, the word means. It's the, it's the plural, right? Talib is the singular or? Talib means a student, a scholar. Mm -hmm. And Taliban, scholars organization. <laughs> and the one thing they weren't were scholars, but they were very young people trained by the army. Before uh, One more question on Pakistan before we return to the 90s in, in Afghanistan. We just discussed how the intervention in Afghanistan strengthened the military's power and Zia's power within Pakistan. But, but how did it also end up strengthening Islamist reactionaries within Pakistan? Was that accidental blowback from the war in Afghanistan or was it intentional. What what various purposes for Zia did backing jihadis serve? It was a mixture of both. It was partially blowback and it was partially military intelligence deciding that these groups could be used as uh, extra force when they needed to go and do something which they couldn't do wearing uniforms. So the, these people got support from the ISI and they were created. In most of the elections that have taken place in Pakistan, real elections, the religious parties have actually not won too many votes. It's very much an outside force, outside the traditional boundaries of Pakistani politics. And this, the government was doing this. The United States knew this very well. There was no big uh, problem. And these are the groups that then started creating mayhem in Pakistan itself, you know, carrying out terrorist attacks, blowing up buildings, uh, killing enemies. And has it become too large to be dealt with by the military? In my opinion, no. I think the Pakistan army was really waiting for the Afghan situation to be solved one way or the other before they take any more decisions on what to do with their own jihadi groups. Some, of course, 
they want to push back into Afghanistan because they are of Pashtun origin. Uh, but there are others which are not. And others others which serve purposes vis-a-vis Kashmir and India. Yeah, I think they had to withdraw the jihadis from India, from Kashmir. But after a huge mess had been uh, created, which only helped the Indian government, you know, it en- enabled them to go in to torture, kill people, ordinary people who had no connection with uh, terrorism of any sort. And it's now created a situation where the bulk of Kashmiris just want to be free. After the Soviet withdrawal in 19. 19- 89 came the fall of the communist government in 1992. And Pakistan, the US, and Saudi Arabia, you write, they wanted to impose a government led by Mujahideen leader Gabuddin Hekmatyar. But but that, you write, did not go over well with the rest of the Mujahideen. And so civil war broke out, pitting all of these various factions of the Mujahideen against each other, with each of the various factions having various foreign backers, including, if I have it right, the U.S., Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, France, and Russia. How did the Mujahideen victory over the PDPA government spiral into civil war so quickly? Well, we we all know what happened, basically, is that the Russians left behind a weakened PDPA government, which lasted a few years, not nothing. And the Americans had thought it would be toppled very quickly, but it wasn't being toppled. And the uh, PDPA was trying to enter into negotiations with and build alliances with others, like General Dostum on the borders with Tajikistan, like many, many others. And then the United States got worried that they might succeed. So key meetings took place between the U.S. and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia to try and uh, topple the remnants of the PDPA government. And they did that by uniting all these groups once again, said, okay, drive them out. So they did. And amongst uh, these groups, they drove them out, but then they immediately began a power struggle themselves. So much of Kabul was destroyed, not by the Russians, but by different factions of the anti-Russian alliance, which they, which they created and which they couldn't agree on what the outcome should be. At this point, Pakistan, which had already been training the Taliban and the, with the green light of the United States, sent in the Taliban, and no doubt sent in a lot of Pakistani soldiers and young officers, and toppled the government in Kabul, and the Taliban came to power. How did the Taliban relate to this longer tradition of Pashtun nationalism and its opposition to the partition of the Pashtun people by the Durand line. And relatedly, to what extent were the Taliban's politics an extension of Pashtun tribal traditions, and to what degree were they more the product of foreign religious and ideological imports? The Taliban were embarrassed by the fact that they had been created by Pakistan in the first instance. And obviously, the first generation was not too keen to raise the question of the border or uh, links with other Pashtun tribes in Pakistan. 
But slowly that began to change because they were very dependent on the Pashtun populations and the uh, in Pakistan. But they didn't get much support from the Pakistani Pashtuns. The support in Pakistan, they did get some. The Haqqani network built up uh, links with some of the Pashtuns. But by and large, it was the Pakistani army and Pakistani military intelligence which gave them support. And there were always some tensions because they were also nationalistic. But this nationalism was initially came out in a very religious way by saying, by attacking the Shia, the Hazaras who were Shia, uh, and Herat, which is a, you know, Iranian, not an Iranian city, but it's a very old city, once part of the Persian Empire, and where the Iranian government's uh, voices are very dominant. So, they started fighting them to establish their own hegemony. So you had another civil war, which has sort of been semi going on, not on the same level as before, but the violence never stopped. And then came the, uh, the US occupation. So if you say, what was the ideology of the Taliban? I would say that principally speaking, it was a Wahhabi ideology or semi-Wahhabi ideology linked very much to the Saudis and some of the religious groups in Pakistan like the Jamaat-e-Islami. But ultra-religion, the hardcore religious fundamentalism, which was not that common in Afghanistan prior to all this, came largely from Saudi Arabia and Saudi money. The Saudis funded the regime a great deal. And uh, Pakistan did too. How did 9-11 lead to the overthrow of the Taliban government? It might seem like the most obvious question to some people, because in retrospect, it almost takes on the appearance of cause and effect. But in reality, it was like it was by no means inevitable that a small group perpetrating a terrorist attack would lead to the government of a nation state being overthrown. What happened in late 2001? And might something else have happened instead? You have to take two factors into account. One is that the ideologues of the United States its foreign policy elite, its intelligence, military intelligence, were posed a question after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of that particular type of Cold War. And the question was basically this, how are we going to exercise US hegemony on a globe where capitalism is now everywhere? Russia's capitalist, China's, uh, you know, embraced capitalism. How are we going to defend our interests? In the past, we could use the communist bogey everywhere, Latin America, Asia, Africa, to crush people. Now what are we going to do? And this was a, a continuing debate. And clearly what they felt they had to do was to find an excuse and ways of reordering the world, uh, which they did with the first Gulf War in the Middle East against Saddam 
in the early 90s as the Soviet Union was losing all power whatsoever. And they got away with that. But they weren't happy. Uh, they felt it was unfinished business. And there was enormous pressure from the Israelis to crush Iraq, crush all the sovereign states in the Middle East, of which now Egypt had been bought basically by the United States with subsidies and nonstop flow of funds. Uh, so that left Iraq, Iran, and Syria. And they made a plan to divide these states up to make them irrelevant. To, but they, they were waiting, I mean, for an excuse to do it. And the excuse came with 9-11. Now, a lot of these groups that had participated in the so-called jihad against the Soviet Union were friendly with their, with their Afghan equivalents, and many had been allowed to stay there, and including Osama bin Laden, Zwahiri, and al-Qaeda. Others too, but this was the principal group. And there are rumored family connections between Mullah Omar and Osama bin Laden. Exactly. There are rumors that I think uh, uh, Osama married one of his daughters or his niece. When I used to know these facts, but they're beginning to fade. Now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they started taunting the United States. You know, there was an attack on a U.S. ship on the, in, in the Yemen waters. There was... Uh, the USS Cole. The USS Cole. There was the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, which was hit by people claiming to be Al-Qaeda and who were clearly Al-Qaeda units. And their aim was, you know, part of their plan to really uh, get their revenge on the United States. So they have wanted to hit the United States. It's what the late Chalmers Johnson said, blowback. He wrote a whole book published a year before uh, 9-11 saying, we are going to be hit on our territory because of what we've done in their territory. Sooner or later, he said, have no doubt about it. We are going to be targeted and hit. No one believed, or very few people did. But So that was the 9-11 planning. But the group that carried it out did it, obviously, without giving all the details to bin Laden and Zwahiri. They knew what they had to do, and they did it. Bin Laden claimed it. He said, this is an Al-Qaeda triumph. And they celebrated. Their pictures of them celebrating. So the United States asked the Taliban to hand over Bin Laden. And the Taliban government said, we are ready to hand him over. But do you have any proof at all? Please just give us some proof. They wanted some proof to show their own people they hadn't betrayed a guest who was, uh, you know, this whole idea of n never betraying your guests or handing them to their enemies goes quite deep in an Afghan culture and history. And the U.S. said, you know, screw you, just hand him over. So they said, well, if you ask like that, we can't. So then the U.S. decided, after some discussion, if you look at the, now it's all public in the public domain, there was a big discussion whether to go for Iraq first or Afghanistan. And finally, Bush decided, let's go for Afghanistan. And he was backed up on that. But there were quite a few people 
who said uh, who wanted to hit Iraq, which had nil connection with Al-Qaeda, but literally no connection whatsoever. In fact, Al-Qaeda hated Saddam because he was a secular leader, you know. And Assad in Syria they hated because he was a secular leader too. So uh, the U.S. then told Pakistan that they were coming in. The Pakistani army was given a couple of weeks to withdraw its men and personnel. And the Pakistanis then said to the Taliban leadership, whatever you do, do not fight back. If you fight, they will wipe you all out. Just retire, let them take the country, and remain calm. Sooner or later, they will realize it's not an easy country to take over and run, like the Russians did. The Pakistanis were quite cynical. But that's that's the advice they gave, and that advice was accepted. And of course, lots of the Taliban leaders and supporters initially fled to Pakistan and then slowly started uh, going back to start the resistance. So that is effectively what happened. You write at the, you wrote at the time, quote, the Northern Alliance is a confederation of monsters. Who were the Northern Alliance and what was so monstrous about them? One thing that comes to mind is the late 2001 massacre committed by General Dostum of thousands of Taliban prisoners, a massacre that the U.S. actively worked to cover up for years. That uh, Dostum was a specialist in this. He really was a brute. He's still alive. He's now uh, resting in Turkey in some Turkish hospital. But Dostum was like that. A sort of the only way to destroy an enemy was to kill him or her, but mainly him. And he did that. And these were the people, the United States, amongst the people, the United States people chose as their allies, as well as encouraging and finally winning over some of the Shia to fight with them. The Iranians had supported the war. So they they built this alliance to run the country with a few technocrats and crooks based in Kabul. The key to the American presence of 20 years was the Northern Alliance. People in Kabul and some other cities were just involved in making uh, money. And an official U.S. report, a general is quoted as saying that what we set up in Kabul after the occupation is a kleptocracy. All these people were interested in was making money. And he's absolutely accurate. And this was said in 2015 or even before that. And everyone knew that. And then slowly the Taliban began to emerge again, defending ordinary people against American or NATO soldiers, helping them when the whole families were wiped out by drone attacks. They played it low-key but very effective. At the same time, they were preparing their guerrilla armies in different parts of the country to set up and organize. And, you know, sometimes when people say to me these days, uh, but why the Taliban? Why them? And the answer is because no one else fought against this occupation. I said, had there been, uh, like in the Kurdish areas, women organizing themselves to fight against the occupation in the cities, 
other places. Who knows what the, how the story would have uh, unraveled, but they didn't. All the Afghan, the PGPA supported the war. They backed the United States, those who were still there. The Afghan liberals, small in number though they were, they supported the war. So why be surprised if you allow the Taliban to totally dominate the resistance? Tiny groups who didn't support the occupation, but by and large, it was the Taliban who uh, kept resisting. And this is the result. To what extent was the Taliban, with all its ethnic, religious, political particularities and its track record of hardline reaction and brutality, to what extent were they able to take on the role of a national liberation movement? Liberation in this instance is a difficult word to use, but there are there are very much elements of it. I mean, if you look at the guerrilla operation, how they operated, it's classic guerrilla warfare, which you know you read about in uh, Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, General Jap in Vietnam, use very similar tactics against different imperial powers. So on that level, they learned a lot of things from what had happened uh, uh, before. And secondly, they had some support of retired Pakistani officers who trained them up further, who were not uneducated people. So uh, this is the image they created for themselves of an army freeing Afghanistan from foreign occupations, from an imperialist, from the grip of an imperialist power, Ten years, they were talking to the United States behind the scenes, saying we're prepared to do a deal provided you get out. The U.S. would agree, then change their minds, agree, then change their minds. Then the U.S. tried to divide the Taliban. And for a while, U.S. papers were carrying reports of the good Taliban and the bad Taliban. It didn't work. I mean, there were factions in the Taliban, but all of them wanted the United States out of the country. So by default, if you like, the Taliban turned out to be the national movement, which turfed out the the United States and NATO from their country. And for this, they'll be remembered. You know, the other thing, Dan, which uh, some Afghan friends were telling me, they say, and they're very anti-Taliban, by the way, they were saying that on a smaller level, on a micro level, say you're in a village X, the Taliban have relations with people who don't agree with them. They talk, they meet on a friendly basis, on a tribal basis. And he gave me a recent example. He said, for instance, two of my sisters-in-law were working for the BBC in Kabul. And we were very nervous. The whole family was nervous. And the father was very close friends with the Taliban leader in the region because they were the, the family had not supported the West or the Americans. So he met up with him and said, I'm a bit worried about my daughters. And the guy said, give me their names. And where are they working? So the father did. He rang up the Taliban commander in Kabul and said, these are good people, don't touch them. 
And this happened in many, many different localities and areas. So the notion that the Taliban were completely cut off from people they didn't disagree with, or the people who didn't agree with them, didn't speak to them, that's nonsense. You can't understand or explain what happened there. You write, quote, With varying degrees of firmness, the occupation of Afghanistan was also supported by China, Iran, and Russia, though in the latter case, there was always a strong element of Schleudenfraude. You wrote this, I think, around you know two decades ago or something. That's a reflection of quite a different world order than the now. It's kind of an enormous question, but what about the world order has changed since, and what role did the war in Afghanistan and the war on terror more broadly play in driving those changes to the extent that the idea of Russia, Iran, and China cooperating with the U.S. on invading some country is just unimaginable today. Well, a lot has changed. The principal reason, I would say, is not the war in Afghanistan, which the Russians watched with some pleasure. There's a very interesting stories that, you know, since Russia was now, lots of it was privatized and capitalists. Lots of the helicopter pilots who'd fought in Afghanistan set up their own company and offered their services to the United States. That happened too. And one of the helicopters was shot down with the pilot. And he was terrified. The Taliban had shot down the helicopter. But this is about 10, 15 years ago. And so the... uh, former Soviet officer, said, who's captured him? And they gave him the name of the Taliban commander. And he said, I know this guy. So he rang him up on his mobile and spoke. they both spoke the language. And the Taliban guy said, hey, Ruski, is this your helicopter? We've caught a Russian? He said, yeah, we're working as... He said, you shouldn't do that. But since it's a Ruski and we actually prefer you to these Americans, have him back. They sent him back immediately. These sort of stories, little micro stories, also happen. Uh, But coming back to the big question, with the United States bogged down in Afghanistan, unable to get its way in South America, I mean, trying hard to topple regimes, succeeding, failing, succeeding, failing. These countries, Russia in particular, said if the U.S. can exercise its hegemony in their way, we will too. So what Putin did, just from his point of view, I'm not saying it's good or bad, he basically took the Crimea back, which he felt was a huge mistake that uh, Yeltsin had made in handing Crimea over to the Ukraine. He wanted the Ukraine back as well, but that they didn't succeed in doing. And, uh, you know, the reason for this was that the U.S. was wanting to bring NATO, surround Russia with NATO bases, basically. The Russians even asked at some stage, why can't we join NATO? Why can't we join the EU? We are now a European power. But the request was treated as a joke. So they they, they tried all that. And when they failed, Russians said, OK, if you're playing it that, that way, so can we. They took the Crimea. They intervened in Syria. So that is what soured relations, that the Russians were no longer 
the Russians were no longer prepared to do the U.S. bidding in world politics, which uh, Gorbachev and to an even larger extent Yeltsin had gone along with. And the Chinese uh, situation is a bit similar, that Deng Xiaoping and more or less caved into the United States. Two things. The huge uh, success of the Chinese economy the fact that China more or less became the new industrial workshop of the world, coupled with the fact that a new Chinese nationalism was developing, both out of pride and also uh, because of what they'd achieved and what they'd suffered. Many Chinese leaders said, we will never allow any Western power to trample on China as they did before. So it's this combination and the Chinese then just realizing that the U.S. hegemony, as they put it, meant that they themselves might be put under threat. Uh, and their simultaneous growth as a state and as a power meant that the, the situation in Asia was now very different again. I mean, China was the preeminent power and the United States couldn't do anything about it. And so, interestingly enough, the first thing the new Taliban government did was fly out a delegation to meet with the Chinese, um, give lots of assurances, ask for aid and help. And that is the country that will play a major part now in the reformation of these entities. Turning back to Pakistan, blowback from the Pakistani state nurturing Islamist Islamist extremism within Pakistan for various purposes at home and abroad has, of course, only grown more volatile and lethal. And that growth in Islamist militancy in turn has been the pretext for deepening U.S. military intervention with the drone war, the sort of spillover of the Afghan war directly into Pashtun regions, which then, of course, becomes a public scandal in, in Pakistan and in a very predictable sort of irony, a great recruitment tool for militant Islamists. You write, quote, the capitulation of liberal secular parties to Washington left the field wide open to armed groups of religious fundamentalists who began to challenge the state's monopoly of legitimate violence, presenting themselves as defenders of both Islam and the victimized Pashtuns in Pakistan. What conditions has this brutal and contradictory combination of the U.S. drone war and Islamist violence created for Pakistanis? And how how have those contradictions, with Pakistan facilitating both U.S. intervention and Islamist militants opposed to that intervention, how has that contradiction played out and continuing to play out in Pakistani society and politics? Well, it's played out in the following way, that the military is a key player in Pakistani politics now. Nothing can be done without the approval of the army. When I say nothing, let me just clarify. I mean, no major decision on domestic or foreign policies can be taken by any elected government. That's very straightforward. And it's not even a secret. Everyone knows. So politicians have to clear many of the things they want to do or do with general headquarters in Rawalpindi. Uh, they have to get permission. 
from the uh, army. Now that is a structural, big structural shift and that I can't see changing uh, short of a revolution, which is very unlikely. And secondly, side by side with it, is the growth of jihadi groups who number hundreds of thousands. Electorally, they're not a major force, but it's in terms of their size to carry out attacks, to disrupt, destabilize, uh, they are quite strong. That's not a lot in terms of electoral power, but that is a lot of in terms of armed cod- militant cadre. Yeah, it is. And it means that they can threaten political parties, threaten government ministers, uh, say Islam is in danger, these people, these politicians are incapable of defending it, etc., etc. So the situation in Pakistan is very unstable. But here's another contradiction for you. One of the most interesting and exciting political movements that has emerged in Pakistan in recent years is the Pashtun Defense Self-Defense Organization. They are largely young people, Pashtuns, who refuse to allow themselves to be labeled as Islamic fundamentalists, who have said they will never carry arms uh, going back to an older tradition of nonviolence in the Pashtun region during the British occupation of, of the subcontinent. And they said, we will just demonstrate, we will uh, against any attacks being made on the Pashtuns, but we will act politically as a political movement. They have one, two or three members of parliament. That's how, that, how deep their popularity is, uh, and they've been harassed by the government. It's just shocking the way they've been treated by military intelligence. And I, when I speak in public, either in Pakistan or elsewhere, I just say to the army, what the hell are you up to? Why are you doing this? Can't you see that these are some of the finest people our country has produced for a long, long time? They're saying they will not take up arms. They're saying they will defend minorities. They're basically incredibly decent as a political organization. Why do you want to destroy them? To agree, you know, one doesn't get any replies. They don't reply, but it's crazy. But that was the first sign for me that indicated that Movements like this, if they develop in other parts of the country, become difficult to crush completely. You know, they can arrest their leaders, they can torture them, they can kill them. They've done some of that with the uh, Pashtun, PTM, Pashtun Tariq Mahfuz. But they, they, they can't get away with it nonstop because when these movements reach a certain point, then they begin to affect people inside the army too. And that stage, it's nowhere near that point. But in in the Pakhtunkhwa, uh, the province on the frontier with Afghanistan, the PTM is certainly the case. And they, by the way, politically speaking, are very determined opponents of jihadi terrorism and and also the Taliban. 
I mean, <clears throat> and they have not been tempted into becoming pro-Western so far. So it's a very interesting development. Pakistani President Imran Khan came to power thanks in some part to his opposition to the American drone war. But he also came to power with ties to the very same military forces that had facilitated both the drone war and Islamic reaction within the country. What have we seen from this cricket star and supposed defender of Pakistani sovereignty? Nothing much. He pledged to build a new Pakistan, but there's nothing new about what's going on. He sometimes says things which annoys the United States, like after they suffered this huge blow in Kabul, uh, Imran was interviewed on national television and asked, what do you think? He said, what do I think? The Americans made a bloody mess there and now they're paying the price. This caused concern in the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan, because Pakistani political leaders aren't meant to say things like that. And then a Pakistani military delegation, which was in Washington at the same time, led by the leader, the general who heads the ISI, the intelligence, he just said to journalists, they're briefing them off the record, he said, what this prime minister says means nothing. We are the people who matter. That's why we're here to talk to the Pentagon. They're the people who matter, whether it's Khan who's in charge or the People's Party or the Muslim League. Or whoever. Or whoever. Finally, what's next for Afghanistan and what domestic and global factors will shape whatever it is that happens next? Because things in economic terms seem very bleak. The Taliban seem a bit unclear, but seem fairly unreconstructed. And the U.S., can't be expected to contribute much more than drone strikes. It's an awful situation. First, after occupying a country for 20 years, you then impose sanctions on it. I mean, sanctions, as is well known now, never affect the leaders of countries. They affect ordinary people. So had there been even a tiny bit of intelligence in the leaderships of the West, in in the Pentagon and NATO, they would have said and should have said that the sanctions are only, uh, not that I'm a believer in sanctions anyway, but the sanctions will only be applied to individuals, not to the people and offered massive aid and shown, seen be giving this aid in terms of food supplies. I mean, most of their own food used to be flown out of the Gulf states uh, when they were there. So they never did anything to make Afghanistan self-dependent. Well, they had their McDonald's set up at the Bagram Air Force Base and whatnot. So they yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, in between torturing people, they used to get a Mac, you know. So it's... Um, it's Dreadful situation. The big question is this. Will there be a new civil war? I think since a lot has changed, and since the Iranians are also very friendly with the Chinese, the Iranians have also been talking to Afghanistan for 10 years, and relations are good. I am told that the Iranians have suggested to the Afghans to have a formal parliament, an elected assembly, to permit elections, uh, and to follow the model of Iran. 
Well, I mean, there are problems with the Iranian model, as you can imagine, but it's infinitely superior to what exists in Afghanistan today. And were the Iranian pressure to be accepted, or not pressure, advice to be accepted, that would show some sign of willing and good sense on the part of the, uh, of the Taliban. Secondly, China would be very reluctant to see a new civil war. So in order to stop it, is it going to go and shore up this country, build an infrastructure, involve it in its Belt and Roads Initiative or not? There are indications that they might do that, but we'll, uh, we'll have to see. And third, of course, is the Pakistanis. What are they going to do? Uh, the, are they going to side with China? in trying to restore this region to some semblance of normality, uh, or are they not? I think they are. I think Pakistan's armed forces see the victory in Kabul as their victory as well. And without them, they say it couldn't have happened. But it's foolish to say that, but it's true. They're feeling very strong uh, at the present time. So collectively, China, Pakistan, and Iran could help restore Afghanistan, and let's hope they do so. The French and some other NATO idiots in Europe are saying, uh, we're going to start a new war to liberate Afghanistan. The son of Masood, Ahmad Shah Masood, who fought in the Panjshir Valley, who's a guy happily playing tennis in Northwest London, was suddenly lifted and sent back into <laughs> Afghanistan. And he didn't stay more than a week. He soon came back realizing what the situation is. So um, I think if the West stays out of it, that would be the best thing to happen. It really would. And the people will have to do what they wish to do once they've recovered. I mean, very few people in the West understand that this has been a 40-year war. 40 years of continuous war for a small country. Just imagine the trauma suffered by young children, by women, by old men, by everyone, by the entire citizenry of that country. And they all they want, they want some food, obviously, but they don't want any more war. So I don't think there's going to be too much encouragement uh, from other powers in the locality to wage another war. Well, Tarek Ali, thank you so much, and thank you for the decades of prescient analysis in this essay collection. It's remarkable to read your contemporaneous thoughts on what's happening in the 70s, 80s, and beyond. I only wish that the people in, in charge of the armies and the money had, had listened to what you had to say at the time. Thanks very much, Dan. Very good talking. It's very rare to be able to talk at length on serious subjects these days. Our culture doesn't allow it. Tariq Ali has written more than two dozen books on world history and politics. His next book, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold, is out on November 23rd of this year from Verso Books, and it can be pre-ordered now at versobooks.com. 
Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, moving from its home, where it assumes respectable form, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a great review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling friends why you listen to The Dig, why they should listen to The Dig, etc. Please do make propaganda for us, and please find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 